Second Thessalonians. Uh, both of these letters were written by Paul to this church in Thessalonica, and both of them deal with end-time events. Both of them, uh, especially when they were written a couple thousand years ago, are about the future. And uh, last week we saw, you know, from Daniel, we studied Daniel over the summer, and last week we saw that there are uh, a decree, there, that a decree went out from God that there are seven uh, years left for God to discipline his chosen people, Israel, uh, seven more years. And uh, we saw from Daniel the timing of all of that and so forth. And um, not only that, but um, um, God will bring to a conclusion our understanding of human history uh, along with that seven-year period of time. And so a long time ago, right, God chose the people of Israel, his chosen uh, people, he chose the Jewish people to be kind of his message to the world. In the New Testament, in um, 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, uh, Paul says uh, twice here that the Jewish people uh, and what happened to them is for our benefit. And that if we would really like to understand how God really is and how God really does relate to people, uh, just study the history of uh, the nation of Israel. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 says, These things took place to the Jewish people as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did, that we would learn from their experience. Verse 11 uh, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of things has come. And so the Jewish people are God's message to the world. And uh, if you study the history of the Jewish people, you can get a clear uh, understanding of the way God really is and the way God interacts with people. And so God decreed in Daniel chapter 9 that there were going to be six uh, realities that would come about in this last seven-year period of his discipline of his people. And uh, those six things were, you know, that transgressions and sins would end. Imagine what the world would be like if nobody went against what God said and everybody did what God said. And God promises that there is coming a day when that will be the case, um, when all of uh, transgressions and sins uh, will be over. And then third, he said, uh, amends would be made. There would be a healing, a reconciliation between the nation of Israel and God. And this period of time in which we're now living and we see this kind of blindness uh, to the Messiah and to Jesus and so forth on the part of the Jewish people will be reversed. And those of us who are believers in Christ understand how those amends will be made and how that reconciliation will come about. And then um, there would be righteousness that prevails. The kingdom of God would overcome the kingdom of this world and uh, things would finally be right. Everybody knows that things aren't right. Uh, but righteousness will prevail. All prophecy and vision, God said, will be done. Everything God prophesied and so forth will all come to a conclusion and every one of those things will be fulfilled exactly as God said. And Jerusalem finally will be anointed. Uh, the new Jerusalem comes down, the Jerusalem that's being prepared even now as we're gathered together. None of that has happened for the Jewish people yet, okay? But there are still seven years in the future uh, where these realities will, in fact, happen. And uh, these seven years begin, the clock begins to tick when this uh, figure that the Bible calls the Antichrist, empowered by the enemy, uh, makes a deal with Israel to protect it. 
uh, for seven years, and then exactly in the middle of that seven-year period, uh, reneges on the deal, puts himself in the place of God, and demands the worship of the world, and so forth. Um, Jesus said that uh, that event will kick off what's called, what Jesus called in Matthew chapter 24, the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation. That'll be an absolutely horrible uh, time in the world. Jesus calls it the abomination of desolation. Now, the Christians in Thessalonica, in this church where Paul wrote these letters, were totally confused, right? Just like the Christians in Fairfield, that Trinity, when you try to put this together, become totally confused about what was going on. And so uh, the sequence of these events and so forth, and so that's one of the major reasons Paul writes this, these two letters to the Thessalonian church. And uh, it's exciting that he did because then we have some clarification as to understanding the events of this seven-year period. And uh, the major event is that Jesus will return in association with these seven years. Uh, we saw when we studied 1 Thessalonians that every chapter in 1 Thessalonians ends with a reference to the return of Jesus, to Jesus coming back uh, to the earth. And so these six realities that God decreed uh, will literally be achieved when Jesus uh, returns. So in 1 Thessalonians, um, we saw that uh, the people thought that Jesus' return was imminent. They thought that he was coming, you know, like within the week. And, uh, and, and they lived that way, and they expected that, and they understood that Jesus' return uh, was going to protect them from the day of the Lord or God's judgment on them. And so then as time went by and uh, Jesus' return uh, seemed to them to be delayed, um, some things started to happen, and they began to think that the day of the Lord had begun, and Jesus hadn't come yet, and uh, that created this kind of confusion. And so one of the things that happened is that their people started to die. And um, if you remember right, um, you remember that uh, this uh, church, there was a lot of uh, persecution, and there was a lot of uh, uh, opposition to the gospel in Thessalonica, and so that increased, and people died, and they thought that that meant the day of the Lord had already started, that Jesus had, hadn't returned to protect them from the day of the Lord, and so they were confused. And so 2 Thessalonians is written to clarify and to help people think about the timing of these events in relationship uh, to each other. And so, you know, Paul really loves this church. Um, if we start and, and turn to 2 Thessalonians uh, the first chapter, uh, Paul writes like this in verses 3 and 4. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. We're very thankful for this church, uh, as it is right, because of two things. Your faith is growing abundantly. Paul's really excited about these people because their faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the other churches of God, for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. This wasn't a country club church where everything was just peachy keen. Uh, all your afflictions and persecution which you're enduring. And I want to just point out what Paul says. He's thankful for this church because why? Well, because their faith is increasing. Faith is not static. 
Faith is not like, you know, well, I have faith and I got faith when I was seven years old and that's pretty much the end of faith. No, faith is growing. If faith is real, faith is growing. And uh, our faith influences, as we get older, more and more as we mature. Uh, Or, as we like to say, as we become more God-first people, our faith begins to influence more and more of our everyday living. Our faith grows. And Paul was excited because these people's faith was growing abundantly. It was like on fire. And uh, it was affecting more and more of their lives. And so, you know, I think for some of us, maybe when we first start out, our faith is kind of an intellectual thing. We kind of understand the gospel. We kind of embrace this idea that Jesus died on the cross for us and, and we kind of get it in our head. But, you know, when you live with that for a while, it begins to get down into your heart and it begins to affect you on an emotional level. And you understand that Jesus, the perfect, spotless, sinless lamb of God, died in your place on the cross. And when that begins to get into your heart, you begin to start to love him for what he's done for you. And that begins to affect your attitudes and your values and And it begins to affect our feelings and how we feel about ourselves and how we feel about other people and and, uh, our attitudes and so forth. And and then, you know, once that starts to happen, next thing, uh, our wills begin to get affected. It begins to affect us in uh, what we do with our time and the choices and decisions we make, what we do with our money, what comes out of our mouth, you know, uh, where we look for guidance and counsel who we turn to, and our faith grows, and it just begins to affect, you know, how we raise our children, how we live out our marriages. Everything is affected when our faith grows. And Paul is also thankful for these people. Look what he says. We give thanks to God for you uh, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Love is not a static thing either. When love is real, it increases. You know, the Bible says that love, okay, comes from God. Love comes from God. And so when you get connected to God and you allow God and you begin to experience the love of God, it changes you and it enables you to become a loving person. And when you understand that this love from God is totally dependent on grace and God's mercy... It's not because we deserve it. It's because that's the way God is. And as that love gets inside of us and we become like that, we begin to have the capability of loving other people by grace. And we begin to increase in our ability to have mercy on other people. Uh, Love is not a static thing. And uh, the increasing ability to love is always a mark of maturity, especially Uh, when it gets to the level of understanding that sacrifice is always involved in loving. You know, you can love so far, but then there's always a point at which, you know what, in order for me to keep loving, I need to make some sacrifices here. Just like God sacrificed as we celebrated around the table for us this morning, love always involves sacrifice. And so this church, you know, was not a a country club church. We know from 1 Thessalonians, Uh, There's a lot of opposition, uh, either um, from Jewish people or from family members, against the people who turn to the gospel, as we saw in verse 4. 
And uh, you might remember in Acts chapter 17, when Paul came to this place, he got run out of the temple and eventually got run out of town in Thessalonica. So it's kind of a a hostile environment. And uh, the people started thinking, you know, this must be the day of the Lord that we were taught. This must, God must be allowing judgment to come uh, into our lives. And, and, uh, and not only that, but um, uh, all of a sudden a letter arrives at this church, supposedly coming from Paul. It was like fake news, okay? And uh, let me just skip ahead. If you just peek into chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2. Uh, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Top of all of their personal experiences, this letter comes supposedly from Paul uh, to try to convince the people, yeah, the day of the Lord has come, and guess what? Jesus hasn't come to rescue you from it, you're in for quite the ride, right? And so the people were confused because why? Why were the people so confused there? Um, Well, the people were confused because they thought that Jesus was supposed to come before the day of the Lord and rescue them from the wrath or the anger of God that the day of the Lord is all about. Uh, The day of the Lord, that technical term, is talked about substantially in the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, And uh, the day of the Lord is the day that the Lord will come and vindicate himself in the world. Um, It's talked about many places in the scripture. Uh, The day of the Lord is the day that the Lord God will intervene in the history of mankind uh, to bring judgment upon everything that's evil and everything that's wicked. I think we might say that the day of the Lord puts an end to the day of man. The day of man started when God granted free will to Adam and Eve, and they could do whatever they chose. And they chose to go against God and to rebel. And the day of man, still the day that we're living in today, is a day when you can choose to do anything you want. You know? But when the day of the Lord comes, the Lord will reign. Sin will be gone. Transgressions will be gone. And uh, Jesus will reign. The day of the Lord is defined in the Bible as the most devastating time of judgment that the world has ever known. Um, Let me just read one place in uh, Revelation chapter 16, uh, verse 18. It says this, uh, There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split, Jerusalem, into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Remember, Babylon was the first nation that uh, God used to discipline his people Israel. And um, listen to this, verse 20. Every island flew away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Uh, imagine this. I mean, it makes Irma, right, kind of look like child's play. When, and, and as many places we could go uh, with descriptions of that day, eight different prophets in the Old Testament all speak about the day of the Lord, 19 different times, and every time they speak about it, it's absolutely horrible. 
And um, not only that, but three New Testament writers repeatedly use this term, the day of the Lord. Uh, but the bottom line is, uh, in Thessalonica, the people were confused. And so, notice something else here. Paul's excited for these people because they, uh, you know, their faith is growing and their love is increasing. But what's missing? Almost every time Paul writes to a church, he talks about faith, hope, and love. There's no mention of hope here. Faith, hope, and love. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians, if we go back to the very beginning when Paul wrote to the first church, verse 2, uh, we give thanks to God always for all of you consistently, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. Faith, hope, and love are the three non-negotiable absolutes of the Christian life. They're what Jesus died to give us. Faith, hope, and love. But hope is missing here. Uh, Paul's excited about their faith because it's growing. He's excited about their love because it's increasing. But he doesn't say anything. Hope is missing. Why? Well, because these people were confused about prophecy. They were confused about the future. And it robbed them of the hope that Jesus died to give us to live with. And when that happens, and it happens still today, um, it's really hard uh, for those of us who are believers without uh, this optimistic uh, hope that Jesus wants to give us about the future, it becomes really hard to deal with suffering and death and hurts and pressure and anxiety and all the rest of the things that come against us in this world. Without hope, You see, these people, without understanding what God had promised about the future and and with the confusion that they were living with, uh, dealing with uh, suffering and and persecution and affliction without confident hope in this great future. In Hebrews chapter 11, you know that God puts up people of great faith, uh, a whole list of them. He holds them up for examples for us of what great faith is. Every one of them suffered in some way, right? Right? And how did they get through it? If you read the text, it says, because of the hope that they had, they were able to endure and make it through whatever suffering was coming their way. They knew that this wasn't the end. They knew that this wasn't all there is. They knew that God was overseeing it. And uh, I think, you know, uh, the truth is that God knows that an easy life leads to a shallow faith. We all want an easy life. Who invites suffering? But the truth is, an easy life leads to a shallow faith. It's really when we hurt or when we uh, have to sacrifice or when we get rejected or when we experience severe loss, isn't that when we reach out to God the most? Isn't that when we realize our own resources are dry and offer us nothing? And isn't that when our faith grows the most? is in the midst of those kinds of struggles and so forth. That's when our faith deepens, or we understand, you know what, I didn't have as great a faith as I thought I had because it's unable to help me in the midst of the trials that I'm going through. And so God allows these tests and these trials to come into our life so that we can know where we're at in our relationship with him. So our faith gets uh, tested. It's under pressure that we grow the most. 
You know, you don't develop patience, for example, right, by reading a book about patience. You can read a book about patience, but that doesn't make you patient. You want to develop patience, take on a ministry. Do something for God. I mean, just set yourself to accomplish something for God's kingdom and watch and see if you don't have to reach out to God for him to give you more patience. You want to develop patience, get in a soul care group, right? And commit yourself to a group of people to help each other grow and mature. And see if patience doesn't have to, if you don't reach out to God and say, wow, help me to be more patient, you know, with myself and with the people and so forth. I think uh, James talks about this probably the best. In James chapter 1 and verse 2, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when various trials come into your life. Count it joy. Be thankful that you have an opportunity to deepen your faith in God. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. How does your faith grow? Well, it grows through trials. And there's all, I like James says, you know, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. I thought, what kind of trials is he talking about? Well, uh, sometimes there are health trials. Sometimes there's finance trials. Sometimes there's relational trials. Sometimes there's trials related to work. Sometimes there's trials with personalities, both yours and other people's. Uh, sometimes there's mental trials, right, and challenges. Sometimes there's spiritual trials and emotional trials and intellectual trials. And uh, trials come to us when we uh, experience loss, you know, when somebody we love is uh, taken away from us and so on and so forth. And so when the tough times come, when suffering and loss and, and hurts come against us, you know, if we leave the faith, if we kind of think, you know, like these people who in the end times, you know, these hailstones and they blame God for it and they walk away. If we leave the faith or if we stop worshiping or if we, uh, you know, uh, withdraw from a community of fellowship where we're accountable and where people are talking into our lives. They should be like, you know, uh, idiot lights on our mental dashboard that are going off saying something's wrong here. Something's wrong. Uh, these trials are designed to deepen our faith and to strengthen us, uh, not to take us away from the Lord. Uh, trials are designed to work for us, not against us. And so in verse 4 of uh, 2 Thessalonians, the first chapter, uh, Paul says, you know, we ourselves boast about you to the other churches for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in your afflictions. And then he says this in verse 5. He says, this is evidence. The fact that you have trials and the fact that you're suffering and the fact that, you know, people are persecuting and so forth, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. When you take a hit for the cause of Christianity or for the person of Jesus, this is evidence that God will come and make things right and even. Look at this. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Now, verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. You know what? This is why Jesus said, 
when you become a Christian, you can actually love your enemies. You know what? When you have an enemy who comes against you for the cause of Christ, you can have compassion for that person because you know that God's going to get even for that and they don't. You ever think about that? Every once in a while, if somebody didn't really come against me, you know, I'm preaching a funeral or something, and somebody will come up and argue with it and so forth, and I really feel compassion for this person because they don't know that, you know, in their uh, opposition, they're only setting themselves up for God's judgment for this day of the Lord when God will recompense. And notice, you know, how Paul says this. You know, when this stuff happens to us, it's evidence of God's righteous judgment coming. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. There is a day when it's going to be made even. And uh, it's God's job to do that, not ours. Can I suggest uh, in Romans, um, Romans chapter 12 and verse 18, here's where we're supposed to live now. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everybody. It's our job to be at peace with everybody. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's not for us to get even. It's for us to live at peace with everybody as much as possible. But you can know that there is a day coming called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord when God will get even. And that's what gives us compassion and uh, love for even our enemies uh, because we know uh, what's going to happen. He says, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when is that going to happen? You ever say to yourself, well, that's great, but when? When is it going to be right? Well, look what he says, when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven, when the Lord comes back, uh, then it will all be made right with his mighty angels in flaming fire, uh, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there is coming a day. Everybody knows that it's not right right now, uh, but there is coming a day when it will be made right. I think... uh, Uh, you know, the same thing is said by Paul uh, to the church at Philippi. Uh, Let me just read uh, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Um, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Since God has, you know, accomplished uh, salvation in our lives through the gospel, live a life that's worthy of the gospel of Christ uh, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, Okay, with one mind, striving side by side for faith of the gospel. Okay, now, if you want to avoid suffering and you want to avoid all this, just don't do anything for the gospel. Just don't represent it. Just don't speak up, you know? He says, but uh, I want to hear that you're standing firm with one mind, striving side by side for the gospel and not uh, frightened in anything by your opponents, can I tell you, wherever the gospel goes, there are always opponents. Always. Has been since Jesus, all the way until Jesus comes back. Don't be frightened by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. 
For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. Suffering becomes evidence and proof of the gospel and of the return of Jesus and the day of the Lord uh, judgment. Not only that you should believe in him, but suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have, the Apostle Paul. It has been granted to us, not just to believe, but also to join in the cause, the cause of Christ in bringing the gospel uh, into the world. And uh, I, I think this uh, comes together. And, you know, I think we all know that things are not right right now. You do the God-honoring right thing, and what happens? The whole world stands up and applauds? It's not the way it works, you know. Um, the 73rd Psalm is a, a psalm that I've gone back to many times. And, uh, you know, Asap, who's probably the worship director in the temple, uh, wrote this psalm. And uh, here, here's, you're familiar with this Psalm, he says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, uh, my feet almost stumbled and my steps nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Translated, that guy is like, you know what? I've been looking around. I'm trying to live a godly life, a God-first life. And uh, I look around and everybody else is winning and I'm losing. You know, and I'm sick of it. And uh, you can read the Psalm, Psalm 73. And... Uh, he goes on kind of complaining about uh, other people and how they're rich and he's not and they're healthy and he's not and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And uh, he starts moaning and groaning and whining, you know, and so forth. And then, verse 16 and 17, he says, but when I thought about how to understand this, when I thought about how should I be thinking about this, when I thought about how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I just, I thought about it, thought about it. I lost sleep over it. I couldn't figure it out. It was just, you know, uh, I couldn't get it. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, he says, and I thought about their end. Until I took my little life here of 100 years and put it in the context of eternity, and then all of a sudden it made sense to me. Why would somebody want to live a God-first life if all they get for it is criticism and suffering and struggles and pain and frustration? Well, because Christians don't just live for this life. They live for eternity. And when you set this life in the context of eternity, and then all of a sudden the psalmist says, oh my goodness, I see those other people and the path that they're on and how slippery it is and what their end is and how terrible it's going to be. And then he says something really interesting. He said, you know, if I'd have spoken the way I thought, I'd have betrayed a whole generation of children. If I'd have said, you know what, I don't think God's fair. Because I look around and, you know, I'm on the short end and, and all the bad guys are on the uh, right end and, and it just doesn't work, you know, and it doesn't pay to serve God. He says, I'd have betrayed a whole generation of children. I wonder what the kids in our generation, what message they're getting from us. It has a lot to do with how we deal with suffering and how we deal with the struggles that God allows to come into our lives and how we handle those things. Doesn't it? I mean, when I uh, visited with Cheryl Lovegren, who just, you know, went home to be with the Lord this past week, she has a deep, strong faith, and she had a most horrible operation and cancer in her throat and, and a, just a, a terrible situation, and yet her faith held strong. You know why? Because she had hope. She understood that, you know what, this isn't all that there is. 
And, and it's that communication to her kids, uh, the strength of her faith in the midst of, you know, maybe one of the toughest trials she ever faced uh, that enable her to stand strong. And so when Paul talks here in this uh, passage in Thessalonians, and we're way out of time, huh? Um, you notice what he says here, you know, the day of the Lord is going to come. And when the day of the Lord comes, it's going to be a huge reversal. All the people that the psalmist was uptight about, you know, are going to be suffering. And all the people who put their faith in God and his son Jesus uh, are going to be, well, let me read it for you. Uh, It says here in verses 9 and 10, they're going to suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day, the day of the Lord. Okay, so that'll be a horrible day. And there's all kinds of words here, flaming fire, uh, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and don't obey the gospel, Um, you know, eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and so forth. But what about those of us who have put our faith in God? Uh, On that day when the Lord comes, we will be glorified. He will be glorified in his saints And he will be marveled at among all those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. What an amazing day that's going to be. All kinds of horrible things are going to be happening on the one hand. But for those of us who put our faith in him uh, and don't put our faith in anybody or anything else. You know, I think there are three kind of big categories of people who put their faith in something other than Jesus. There's, first of all, people who put their faith in themselves. I talk to people about, you know, uh, what do you think is going to happen after you die? And the majority of people say, well, I'm a good person. They sort of compare themselves to Charles Manson or somebody like that, and then they come out pretty good, and they think that they can make it. They're putting their faith in themselves when they die and stand before God. A second group of people seem to put their faith in a fantasy, and the fantasy is that they live by sight, not by faith, and so... They think that when you die, there is no afterlife. That when you die, it's lights out, and that's the end, because that's what it looks like. And that's what they believe. And they've never heard of Easter, or they've never embraced, you know, what God says about eternal life and making us in his image, which is forever, and all of those kinds of things. A third group of people seem to put their faith not in Jesus, but in um, their religion. You know, and they say, well, I'm a good Baptist. Well, what does that mean? or I'm a good Presbyterian, or I'm a good Catholic, or I'm a good Buddhist, or I'm a good Mormon, or whatever. They put their faith in their religion instead of Jesus. And this passage of Scripture tells us that, no, that's not, uh, on that day when the Lord comes back, you know, um, that's not how it's going to be. And if you think, oh, well, you know, God would never really do that, eternal destruction and flaming fire and so forth. Again, I would encourage you, look at the history of the Jewish people. Go to the Holocaust Museum. And ask yourself if God's not serious about sin against him. And and appreciate, you know, what Jesus did for us on the cross. I mean, way more than I think we give credit. Uh, What a a salvation God has provided for us. And uh, so the day of the Lord is going to be quite a day. Just uh, think, you know, um, think of all the preparation that's gone into preparing for the wrath of Irma. Think of all the preparation, you know, that you've watched on the news and so forth, and, and all of that's fine. But ask yourself, what preparation are people making for the day of the Lord? I mean, the forecast in the Bible for the day of the Lord 
you know, is very solid, and it's, it's been there for a long time. Um, let me just, let me read one other place here. Zephaniah, one of those uh, minor prophets in the Old Testament, one of the eight prophets that speaks about the day of the Lord. Uh, Zephaniah chapter 1, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Verse 14, the great day of the Lord, here's the phrase, is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. Uh, The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty embattlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall uh, walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. There are other places in the scripture that talk about this day and, and talk about a quarter, 25% of the population of the world being gone. And then right after that, uh, yet there's 75% of the people left. Right after that, a third of those people are wiped out. So that's half of the population of the world in this terrible day of the Lord. And uh, in that day, you know, there will be this great uh, reversal of those who um, put their faith in in what God offered us in Christ and those who refused or refused to obey the good news of the gospel. We're out of time. Um, You could read uh, Paul then prays for these people, for this church. And he has three major requests for the people in this church uh, as he prays at the end of chapter one. Let's us pray together. Father God, we're so thankful for the Bible. I wish we could just avoid these kind of passages. Just pretend, Father, that uh, there is no such thing as the day of the Lord coming. But uh, you saw fit to put these uh, books of the Bible in your word so that we could understand the events uh, that uh, are in our future. And uh, I pray, Heavenly Father, that these uh, passages would be a sober uh, kind of a wake-up call, much kind of like the storms that Florida is facing today. Only we would realize, Father, that uh, this is a decree from you and that you are patient and that you are loving and that you are giving time so that people can get reconciled to you and so that uh, the good news of the gospel can go out to more and more people because it's not your will that anybody would be lost but that all would be saved. But you are coming back and when Jesus comes back, what a day that's going to be. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would impress it upon us and that we... Uh, would get ready for that day, for Jesus' sake. Amen.